1: Yesterday, I spoke with Dan Iveson, Chief Investment Officer of PIMCO, overseeing $1.7 trillion in assets. He also happens to be the manager of the world's biggest actively managed bond fund. And we discussed everything from leveraged loans to Brexit to emerging markets. I started off by asking him, are we on the brink of a more serious downturn than many people are preparing for starting in 2019? Take a listen.
2: The short answer is, uh, you know, we don't know for sure. But uh, I think the last few months have given us a sense of the types of risks that are out there you know, that both uh, the economy and markets are going to face uh, in 2019. Uh, I think at a minimum, like we've seen this year, uh, expect uh, ongoing volatility. And I think that's true across really all segments of the financial markets. Uh, in looking at uh, 2019, we're still quite constructive on growth, at least in the base case. Uh, much more concerned about policy, uh, politics on a global basis, and although we've seen some repricing in risk assets over the course of the last few months, we still think uh, valuations are at, at a point where you know if we see more negative outcomes, you know across a series of of pockets of uncertainty, you know you could see continued pressure on risk assets from here.
1: So, which risk assets in particular look uh, especially vulnerable?
2: Well, again, uh, and and we've talked about this now for for quite some time, Um, you know, the credit markets, you know, particularly the non-financial segments of the corporate credit markets are where we see the most long-term risks. Now, I, I think it's important to note that we've seen some repricing there. If you look at more traditional valuation metrics, at least in terms of where spreads are from a historical perspective, you know, things look closer to fair, but... Uh, Wait, look- hold on
1: a second. That's important. You said things look closer to fair, meaning that there are some buying opportunities within credit right now?
2: Well, yeah, to, to be clear again, um, you know, you know, first of all, the, the, the types of measures that, that would suggest that you know the corporate credit markets are more fair uh, don't necessarily take into account some of the risks that have been building in that space. So to answer your specific question first, uh, we are beginning to see a few select opportunities across credit markets. But we remain concerned about credit in general, uh, and I'm referring to, to again, non-financial corporate credit mostly. Uh, we think uh, this is a sector that is most prone to overshooting fundamentals. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of issuance over the last decade. Uh, we've seen a steady uh, deterioration uh, in underwriting standards, and it's been a long time, you know, really, you know, n- not since early '16 has there been real fear, you know, in the corporate credit market. And it's been much longer than that since we've gone through a default cycle uh, in fact uh, you know many participants in these markets uh, today have never gone through a default cycle so we're cautious i think you know as an active asset manager the more generic forms of credit risk even though uh, in a more narrow sense are beginning to look more reasonable from a valuation perspective this is an area where you know we believe if you can be more creative use you know all the global tools uh, at a investor's disposal You could end up with a much more resilient portfolio still underweight that risk.
1: It's a tough needle to thread here, and I can tell because you're not the only one, but I've spoken to people, and they're starting to see select opportunities, but overall, on average, credit spreads could widen. So can you talk about, first of all, where opportunities are starting to emerge and how to be creative uh, in an environment where it does become more specific and less macro-driven?
2: Sure, And, and, and I think, you know, First, uh, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here, you know, relating to the credit markets um, it, 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 it is really the type of philosophy you need as an active asset manager to outperform more broadly. Uh, I, I think at this stage uh, in the cycle, uh, and cycles can extend a lot longer than, uh, than participants um, expect them to, you know, you want to be nimble, uh, you want to be flexible, uh, you want to be liquid. Uh, and if you can do that, and, and of course that involves a lot of patience, which sometimes from a behavioral perspective – Uh, is the the toughest thing uh, to adhere to. Uh, But with that flexibility, you know, we believe, you know, we can be liquidity providers in areas where there has been some overshooting. So, you know, looking at the world today, um, for the first time in a while, we're beginning to see, you know, pockets of concern and pockets of volatility show up. Uh, One sectors uh, within the financial space, uh, banks more specifically, Uh, So, for example, uh, there's a tremendous uncertainty uh, relating to Brexit. Uh, There are certainly, you know, very negative paths that these negotiations can take. But even under very extreme negative scenarios for Brexit, you know, when looking at the banking system there, you know, we don't believe that even under worst case type scenarios, uh, the viability of some of these larger financial institutions uh, is at risk. Uh, You have very high capital ratios um, relative to past history. And now, although you have to appreciate uh, the increased uncertainty and the ongoing volatility in that space, you're picking up yields and spreads um, that we think are more than enough to compensate uh, for the risk. That's one example, of course, as you go through other areas of the world, uh, across Europe, uh, even uh, in the United States, we think there's a similar dynamic where, you know, in the midst of a market That's, you know, at best, fairly valued. There is this sector of the market that's borne the brunt of some of the recent volatility and where we think, you know, as a patient investor, you can go on the offense a little bit and find good risk-adjusted returns.
1: What do you think U.S. credit versus emerging markets debt?
2: Yeah, that's that's another uh, great question. Um, On the margin, you know, looking into next year, we still think there's some attractive opportunities uh, in the emerging markets. But I think also, you know, we're acknowledging that emerging markets very quietly have performed extremely well over the course of the past few months. Um, As you know, back in uh, the summer period, um, there was considerable fear towards the emerging markets. Um, Almost all the financial press was focused on concerns, uh, you know, really across the board uh, Brazil and Mexico, and in some of the, I guess, relatively safer areas, Turkey, Argentina a tremendous amount of concern. Of course, you know now over the last few months, we've seen weakness in global equity markets, weakness in the corporate credit markets. These areas where there appeared to be the most fear just a few months ago, have actually performed extremely well, uh, both on a relative basis and in many cases on an absolute basis as well. So when we look at emerging markets today versus several months ago, uh, fears dissipated, um, along with uh, fear being reduced, Spreads have tightened. Prices have gone up. So their advantage versus other types of credit investments has narrowed. Uh, with all that said, we continue to be you know, active in the emerging markets. I think the key in this space is to size risk appropriately, given uh, increased volatility and at times you know, more idiosyncratic uncertainty. Um, so we like the sector. We just don't love some of these investments um, on a relative basis like we did just a few months ago.
1: Dan, when you're talking, I'm just thinking how being nimble really does sort of stand out. Because you're talking about how a few months ago it seemed like a good buy. Now it probably seems a little bit less so. Credit markets starting to see a little bit more value. How do you remain nimble given the size of some of your funds um, and given the fact that there could be a change in sentiment that is very hard to execute quickly?
2: Sure. You know, I, I think one key is, is... – Diversity in approach, and you know the, the the you know we're we're fortunate at Pimco, and, and, and I know we started the conversation with with you kindly you know referring you know to me you know a, you know as, as a member of royalty. Uh, in fact, I, I'm
1: you're not very comfortable with me saying that, are you?
2: Well, it's not it's, it's not about <laughs> comfort. It, 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 I I just think that you know myself and, and and other senior folks around our firm you know have the benefit of a tremendous team a global team and a team that's involved in many segments of the market. So I think the value proposition is to come up with creative ways to generate value while maintaining sufficient liquidity or flexibility and not relying on, you know, more of a lazy overweight to corporate beta. And one way we do that uh, is to try to understand what types of risk we're taking. And if we're expressing a view on credit spreads more broadly in a portfolio, we try to do that in the most liquid way possible. Um, so rather than getting into a situation where you're buying each cash corporate bond that comes to market, we try to pull risk in such a way where we maintain that flexibility to change our views as market conditions change.
1: ETFs yeah. or credit default swaps?
2: Uh, you know, typically indices. Um, you know, we've looked at the ETF market, but mostly some of these diversified indices that trade out there in the marketplace um, can typically offer liquidity. You know, up to 20 times greater than a portfolio of cash bonds. So that would be an example where, if we're simply looking to fine tune the beta um, or our overall exposure to, to credit more broadly, you know, those are the type of tools uh, that that we try to utilize. Uh, in addition to that, um, we look to find areas of the market that are attractive that offer materially better liquidity Uh, one area of the market that we're focused on currently are agency mortgage-backed securities these are areas of the market that have widened uh, this year Uh, one of the primarily primary reasons why they've widened is that the federal reserve is selling them again Uh, we don't mind that Um, that's a technical in the marketplace that over time uh, will likely resolve itself of course as the Fed continues to reduce balance sheet, they can certainly go wider from here. But that's an example of a reasonable surrogate for forms of less liquid risk uh, that we like to utilize and where we, again, have the good fortune of having a, a big and an effective team in that area combing through the different alternatives within that very high quality segment of uh, of the market. And then finally, um, the willingness to hold uh cash, sometimes moderate amounts, sometimes a lot of cash, and that gets back to what I mentioned earlier. It requires patience. It also requires the ability to accept underperformance during periods where credit spreads are tightening and when stocks are going up. Uh, We were in that environment now for, you know, a good portion of uh, 2017, even, you know, briefly earlier in this year, and I think you have to be willing to give up a little bit of near-term return to optimize portfolios for clients over the long run.
1: So, right now, how much cash are you holding relative to recent history?
2: Yeah, it, it, it depends on the mandate. Um, but I, you know, looking looking across the board, you know, certainly relative to, um, you know, several years ago, you know, we are, you know, at several multiples more cash than we would hold historically. And even that doesn't tell the full, um, or, or, or doesn't, you know, fully paint the picture. In addition to having cash on hand, we really, really focus on liquidity tiering. So we want to make sure that, um, uh, you know, above and beyond just old-fashioned cash, we also have sufficient liquidity in other areas of the portfolio to be able to deal with more negative – Negative environments.
1: So, one area that's been particularly beaten up, at least uh, verbally, by regulators and analysts, has been leveraged loans. People have called this the epicenter of the credit bubble and the first, uh, first place to go. We have seen prices decline to the lowest since October 2016 on these leveraged loans. Do you agree? Do you feel like this is a really uh, a troubled spot?
2: So, I, you know, we're concerned with longer-term fundamentals within the leveraged loan space. Um, You know, I've always said that if if, if I was allowed one piece of research and one piece only, uh, a pretty good piece of research would be to look at issuance versus history. And I think when you look at leveraged loans, you look at other segments of the corporate credit universe, uh, issuance is very, very high. Um, And that has been not surprisingly accompanied by uh, reduced uh, credit fundamentals, less uh, covenants to protect investors, and this risk has been distributed very broadly. And I bring that point up because if we were to get into a more difficult market environment, it'll be increasingly difficult for investors to defend their positions and look to exert influence in any required workouts. Uh, you combine that with significant issuance uh, within the CLO market, and you know, looking at total outstandings of the CLO market. Um, and I don't mean to sound overly alarmist, but you know, total issuance uh, today is pretty darn close to max outstandings of ABS-CDOs prior to the financial crisis. Uh, And in no way do I suggest that these structures are nearly as weak as those were, but it is setting us up for underperformance and probably overshooting to the downside once investor sentiment towards uh, economic growth changes. So this is an area where we're the most cautious, um, our activities in this space have almost entirely been confined to the most senior tranche, uh, in the, in the CLOs that have been issued. Um, and we have very small holdings in that space. One other final point I'll make on, on loans is that, um, you know, typically later in the cycle when the Fed is taking interest rates higher and when people are concerned about interest rate risk, you hear the thesis that loans are a good way to protect against rising rates, um. I guess it's true in the sense that the coupons float, but if you want to hedge or insulate a portfolio from interest rate exposure, there are other ways to do that. So it's true that loans float and they don't have a lot of direct interest rate exposure, but it's also important to note that these are below investment grade assets uh, that have had uh, a deterioration in fundamentals. So you hedge against one risk and of course you expose yourself to pretty significant Risk of a more negative environment for credit, and I think you know from a from a retail investor perspective, you know at times that's dangerous to the extent that they don't fully appreciate that very critical uh, and important second form of risk embedded in uh, in these types of investments.
1: Dan, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but just to finish up here, I would love to get your sense. This year, investment grade uh, U.S. corporate bonds were some of the worst performers out there, and cash was <laughs> the best performer. This time next year, what do you think will be the best-performing asset class within fixed income, and the worst-performing?
2: Yeah, it's you know, twelve-month forecasts are 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 difficult. I, I think there's a you know there's certainly the chance that that cash ends up with a with a real good year again. Uh, we're we remain a little cautious on high-quality bonds, but if we end up in an environment where a lot of these risks that markets are facing—policy, uh, politics, uh, central bank overshooting. Uh, we don't think high-quality bonds necessarily have a bad potential for returns during during 2019. So um, if you pin me down to uh, one specific area of the market, um, at PIMCO, our favorite sector continues to be the housing-related sectors. Uh, so I would say you know, housing-related bonds, all else equal and adjusted for risk, will likely continue to be a top performer. Even uh, with I- the
1: slowdown in housing that we've seen.
2: Absolutely. And, and I think, I think there's, there's an important distinction that, that needs to be made there. Um, We're not advocating big overweights to investments that require uh, the pace of home price growth to continue um, at, very, at the levels we've seen the last few years. Also, within the housing sector, as you know, um, that's where we've begun to see significant wage pressure. So home builder business models uh, can remain under pressure while bonds backed by homes or borrowers will likely continue to ex, uh, perform extremely well. And the simple reason for that is that regulators, as you know, have made it real hard um, to um, issue new loans to investors. And we've had several years of very strong home price performance. So in these types of investments, you have borrowers that have a lot of equity in their property, um, that for the most part have are employed, and where the downside risks are much lower than some investors still fear so we think not only is this an attractive uh, investment from a yield perspective we think you'll really see significant resiliency versus other alternatives if we happen to get into a more difficult economic environment next year not quite our base case yet, but it's certainly increasing in terms of probability.
1: And worth, what's the worst performing asset class within fixed income?
2: Uh, again, we're, we're, we're real cautious on corporate credit. Despite recent uh, repricing, that's where we think uh, at least the prospects for more negative returns uh, exist.
1: That was Dan Iveson, chief investment officer of PIMCO, overseeing $1.7 trillion in assets, also the manager of the world's biggest actively managed bond fund, Uh, speaking with me yesterday. And, Pim, you know, this is actually important, the concept of, of being a very large actively managed fund. You know, the the concept of nimbleness, the concept of, of holding more cash, of holding derivatives, of holding things that you could get in and out of really quickly, of bonds that were, you know, traded more frequently is such a prevalent theme. And I find that fascinating at a time when everybody seems to agree that volatility is picking up and it's not as clear cut as there's a great opportunity in credit broadly or a terrible opportunity in credit broadly, but, you know, specific opportunities and perhaps uh, opportunities that arrive uh, that arise that can disappear within a month
0: well my reaction is that when the head of the world's largest actively managed bond fund says cash is a great alternative to anything out there and that they're concerned about potential liquidity risks and that risk has been broadly distributed it doesn't sound so great.
1: No, it doesn't. At the same time, it's not that the world is about to end, and, and sort of this is the this is the hard line. Well, it to sort never of does, but, it's, but it it well, sounds bleak. Bleak, but not two thousand and eight, right? I mean, basically, people are saying it's not necessarily the big Kahuna, but you're going to get something that's going to be a much more uncomfortable right. backdrop, and the idea being that the way you can generate bigger returns is to if there is a liquidity event be able to have the money to go put it to work? In other words, if there is a lot of withdrawals from an ETF and the underlyings can't sell and they have to sell at a discount, you know, how do you make sure you can be a buyer at that point? But what I do wonder is given the number of investments, uh, investment managers who we've spoken with, who are emphasizing this, you have to wonder, is that, you know, will that buffer some of the declines?
0: It's possible, but I was just looking at HYG, which is the iShares iBox high yield ETF. It is down nearly two and a half percent since the beginning of October.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been a really rough ride and we've seen spreads or the extra yield that investors earn on top of benchmark rates for high yield bonds and investment grade bonds widened to their most since since two thousand sixteen. So definitely risk off, but when you put it in a sort of longer-term scheme of things, it isn't isn't—it isn't really going uh, and retracing too much of what Dan Iveson was talking about, which was this incredible run-up in credit and, and an unbelievable amount of record issuance.
0: Yes, and just wait until those maturities start hitting, and what are they going to do for new credit? Are they going to roll over those old credits and go back to the same lenders and say, please give me better terms
1: yeah and then the other question is is will this be a soft landing with sort of the air being let out of spreads slowly over time or will this sort of be subject to an event that will create some kind of trauma and that's sort of a big question emerging out there as well
0: well we'll be covering it whether it is a big event or a slow leak (laughs) you're talking about what happens in the world's credit markets
1: Apple came out and said that it would invest $1 billion to expand its operations in Austin. It's also looking at opening up establishments in Culver City, Seattle and San Diego, uh, adding to its sites in boulder it's like all the cities that have benefited the most from some of the uh the tech tentacles that have trickled out of uh san francisco joining us now to talk about this david garrity chief market strategist for laidlaw and company uh david do you think this is a case of president trump getting what he wants in terms of big tech opening more headquarters around the country The only way that Trump
3: would really benefit from a political standpoint is if Apple were to come out and say that they were going to be opening up campuses in rural locations around America, such as Davenport, Iowa, Peoria, Illinois, or others. Um, Out of the six cities that Apple cited, really only Pittsburgh. Uh, might be considered as falling into possibly an area that the Trump political base might benefit. But arguably in Pittsburgh, the reason why Apple's establishing it is really because of Carnegie Mellon University and the strength of their computer science programs. And obviously Apple wants to go where the talent is. But what's the difference?
0: Why, what, I mean, a billion dollars is still a billion dollars. It's great for the city of Austin, right?
3: It's a billion dollars over three years. Uh, I mean, the question is, how many of those employees are actually going to be coming into the U.S. under H-1B visas is another thing to sort of consider here. I mean, obviously there's a there's a granularity behind this headline that may make it sound as if the tech sector is kowtowing to Trump's presidential protectionist edicts. But at the end of the day, you know, Apple is going to have to try to find a way to, to maneuver around these walls that Trump is building against a multilateral global economy.
1: Well, I guess let's put it this way. There has been some talk about rejiggering supply chains in response to some of the tariffs, Apple in particular, uh, might or said that it might do that should the 25% tariffs be implemented do you think this is a whole lot of lip service do you think that uh, they are starting to rejigger their supply chains
3: well understand that these supply chains were established over decades, and clearly one can't necessarily turn on a dime or in a a turn of Trumpian temperament and reconstitute one's global business, but certainly businesses having to deal with the uncertainty that protectionism or the leaning towards protectionism has represented, obviously have to be running themselves in a little bit more fluid manner. So if you have to make some announcements about beefing things up in places where you're gonna be recruiting people anyway, wonderful. Um, but otherwise, um, you know, just the idea of moving imposing protectionism America first basically leads towards smaller markets, undermines economies of scale. Ultimately, the wages of protectionism will be inflation whether they're because of tariffs being imposed on U.S. consumers or because of structural costs that are being imposed on businesses as they face these smaller markets.
0: David, just to, to, to sort of step back a second, you get a chance to listen to Sundar Pichai of Google testify before uh, Congress, right? Yes. Okay. I, I'm sure there are, but I can't name them. you think there are any Americans who are the head of behemoth Indian companies Uh, at present no so okay And, and the reason I ask it like that is because the fact that he is there testifying before Congress representing what in all intents and purposes is the largest search engine company in the world and advertising doesn't that kind of speak to the openness of markets here in the United States.
3: Well, it speaks to what has been, you know, the meritocracy of achievement of America's ability, uh, because of its relative openness, to attract human talent from a global market. And certainly, immigration or the imposition of immigration controls uh, have started to militate against that. We've seen early signs that foreign students are no longer considering American universities for their postgraduate programs. You know, one has to understand if one goes. Through through and looks at, you know, the unicorns, the billion dollar valuation private companies, whether in the tech sector or elsewhere, how many of those have been founded by non-U.S. nationals who came here to get their post-graduate degrees and decided to stay? And now we've also started to see evidence that people have decided that rather than basically pursue opportunity in the U.S., take their capabilities, return back to their countries, India, China, elsewhere, and decide to pursue their dreams in those locales. This is what we get as a result of protectionism. This is what we get from the standpoint of nationalism.
1: All right. I'm just uh, looking right now. It sort of fits in. The Nasdaq has actually turned negative for the day uh, and is down about a half a percentage point after being up earlier. We saw some optimism kind of getting baked in with possible trade agreements or tensions, whatever. But uh, the Nasdaq is still up for the year, 3.4 percent, including reinvested dividends. And I'm just wondering, I mean, do you think that next year is going to be a very rough year for big tech, based on the regulatory pressures as well as the trade tensions?
3: Well, I certainly think that from the standpoint of the volatility that the trade negotiations have built in here, I mean, certainly we're seeing a market that's far more volatile, and I don't think that this is necessarily going to be resolved um, early in 2019, despite the fact that coming out of the G20 meeting in Buenos Aires, there is a thought that there would be some sort of framework agreement in place by March 1st. Um, I would also say at the same time that yes, the concerns, whether it's from the standpoint of data privacy or whether it's from the standpoint of election interference, uh, I think that the Democratic House of Representatives clearly is going to be stepping up further discussions with the technology sector as to how it is that data being data is being managed, and we've seen some data health bills that have been introduced in the Senate, um, primarily from Democratic senators. And we all know that you know, a Democrat Republican Senate led by Mitch McConnell, you know, things like that probably see a snowball's chance of hell of actually getting to the floor. But you know, Mitch McConnell that represents is a, a dead hand.
1: political uh, political expression. Carry on.
3: It is. It is dead hand is another word to use for it. But um, sometimes Mitch looks like that. But in any event, neither here nor there, the outlook for 2019, I would argue, is probably a 4 to a 6% upside in the S&P 500 with increased volatility in terms of 1% moves. For investors, it probably means if you have long positions, write options against them to get the premium income that comes from greater volatility. But for people looking to put money to work in the market, certainly this hasn't made things any easier.
0: Uh, David Garrity, just to give you 20 seconds, do you agree with this statement that China is now the greatest threat to Americans' privacy?
3: No, I think arguably that there are other countries that are the greatest threat to America's privacy. The Marriott hacking with 500 million accounts involved notwithstanding. I mean, certainly China is not alone in terms of hacking. We could look at a wide range of other state actors, not just
0: China. Well done. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. David Garrity, always a pleasure. Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw & Company. And he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactor Brokers studios. And just taking a look at the S&P 500 right now, basically unchanged at uh, 2650 off the highs of the day that were set earlier in the morning. Taking a look at oil right now, up about six-tenths of a percent, $51 a barrel. Gold right now, down about a quarter of a percent. Lower by $3.40, $1,241 for an ounce of gold. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. The topic now is Amazon and its workforce. Amazon workers can earn between 17 dollars 5 to $23 an hour, and they also receive what the company describes as world-class benefits. Well, some workers, at least in New York may not feel that way because they have announced plans to unionize. Here to tell us more is Josh Idelson. He is our labor reporter for Bloomberg, and he joins us from Palo Alto. And you can follow Josh, as we all do, on Twitter at Josh Idelson. That's E-I-D-E-L-S-O-N. So, Josh, tell us why workers at Amazon would want to unionize.
4: Employees I talked to at the Staten Island facility talked about Pay that they view as inadequate, especially in New York City. Safety concerns, they say, don't get adequately addressed. 12-hour shifts without enough breaks, without the ability to get to a break room in with enough time left to make it worth it. Hourly quotas for how much stuff they have to process. Quotas that they say keep moving and are like a finish line that keeps getting changed every day. And additional time that they lose after those 12-hour shifts and mandatory overtime because they're stuck in line, unpaid, waiting to go through security checks so they can leave.
1: So, Josh, can you give us a sense of what type of wages these workers get? It's sort of surprising to me because when I heard that Amazon was creating a new headquarters and putting uh, part of it in New York, that these would be higher paid positions.
4: So these are Staten Island Fulfillment Center workers. These are not HQ2 workers. And these Staten Island workers, one of them I talked to, for example, said that he makes $18.60 an hour. Amazon points out that when people are working overtime and they're getting time and a half at that facility, they're making $26.25 to $34.50 for those time and a half overtime hours.
0: Well, Josh, you know, looking at the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, report that tracks weekly wages for New York City workers, the average weekly pay is over three thousand dollars. Let's say you get twenty-three dollars an hour working at Amazon; that doesn't even add up to a thousand dollars a week for a forty-hour week.
4: And again, that twenty-six, twenty-five, and up rate is for time and a half. So that's not what people are making the other 40 hours a week by the data that Amazon is giving. And these are jobs where people say there's a cost of living that they're unable to keep up with at this rate. And even so, one of the workers I talked to said he commutes four hours a day. So you add the four hours a day back and forth to the job to a 12-hour shift, and people say it, it, there's an exhaustion that builds on the exhaustion of the job itself.
1: All right. So, Josh, I have to think the timing of this is not accidental. There's a lot of focus and political pressure on Amazon to increase wages, to offer better conditions for workers, especially given their uh, parade for the headquarters search, the sort of bachelorette type of uh, scene that we had there. You know, I'm wondering, is that... potential unionizers taking advantage of that, basically saying the time is ripe, let's pounce now while Amazon is in the news for this.
4: There is absolutely an aspect of that to the strategy here. In fact, the union that these workers are working with, the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, its president, told me directly that he thinks there's never been greater leverage to support this kind of effort by workers. He says if there's up to $3 billion dollars in taxpayer subsidies effectively that Amazon is getting, that's leverage to make Amazon not bust a union there. Now, the situation is complicated by the fact that federal law restricts states and cities from regulating union organizing and union busting activities. And so the city does not have totally free reign and neither does the state. However, there is some leeway for government's under court precedent, when their own money is involved, when they have a so-called proprietary interest. And certainly, in the political debate that's going on, that among other things involves advocates and lawmakers saying that a state entity should reject this subsidy deal with Amazon, what Amazon's labor reputation and behavior is, is something that certainly people will take into account in drawing their conclusions. And so the union and the workers think that there is leverage here, there wouldn't be otherwise, to try to stop Amazon from making some of the moves that people allege otherwise might be going on.
0: Josh
1: Idelson thank you so much for being with us Josh Idelson is labor reporter for Bloomberg News coming to us from Palo Alto Uh, and I do have to think Pim the other side of this is that Amazon doesn't necessarily have the biggest margins in the world and they're all into compressing their margins so that they can gain share and you have to wonder will this force their uh, profitability to decline or force prices to increase if this does gain steam and how that will affect the entire retail backdrop a really interesting issue
0: yes and this is coming at a particular Particularly difficult and fraught time for Amazon because of the two new headquarters they said they're going to build.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.